Good morning. As uh, Pastor Andy said, my name is Tad Skinner, one of the pastors here. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, the letter of 1 Thessalonians. That's where we'll be. Uh, I, no surprise, I'm not smart enough to plan, not smart enough for a lot of things, certainly not smart enough to plan this out, that if you have been reading along in our Bible reading plan that's in the bulletin, you'll notice that last week we were in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So, uh, congratulations. So, (laughs) you've read the passage already. Um, So, yeah, you know where 1 Thessalonians is. For those that don't know, it's in the New Testament. I shared this in the first... Um, service, and I don't know, I don't know how it was received, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts and Romans, go eat popcorn cold, hi, little dudes. That's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the H in Thessalonians, the I in Timothy, and then Titus and Philemon, the little guys. All right, so that's where we are. That's how I learned it when I was a kid. There's more to it, but that's it. All right. We'll be in chapter 2 in a moment. We uh, just finished, as you heard and as you've been uh, here the past couple uh, of weeks, we finished a sermon series in financial stewardship, and next week we'll begin a lengthy series in the book of Exodus, as Pastor Chuck shared earlier. Uh, So Pastor Chuck asked me to uh, have this standalone sermon. He gave me the title, Gospel Doctrine Plus Gospel Culture, and said, share something on who we are to be as a church. So I immediately thought of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and hopefully you're encouraged by this. So it's, it's a truth, isn't it, that what we believe determines our actions. And what we believe about ourselves can certainly determine our lives. So just a couple of examples of that. Uh, I've shared this with some of you before, but my dad grew up in rural Oklahoma and grew up in the 1940s on a farm, ranch, no indoor plumbing, outhouse, um, very rural setting. His parents, my grandparents, didn't get much past the fifth or sixth grade in formal education. And, uh, but from a very early age, he was told, particularly by my, my grandma, that, that he was going to go to college. So he heard that growing up all those years, even though they didn't have much formal education. And so lo and behold, when he graduated high school with 10 or 12 other seniors, he was one of the few to go on to college. And then he went on to get his doctorate degree. So what he believed about himself determined his actions. And then on another second example, much sadder, more serious note, uh, many of you know, uh, in addition to being a pastor, I'm also a psychologist. And years ago, uh, when I was starting out, maybe 15 years ago, I had a client who lived somewhere close by, and he believed that if he left a certain radius of his house, so three or four blocks, that he would die. So as a consequence, he lived his life in this area. Wouldn't leave uh, to go get medical care or anything like that. Uh, So very much so what he believed about himself determined his life. So what we believe shapes how we live our lives. And so I would ask, what are your beliefs? And what are your beliefs based on? And is your life matching what you say you believe? And if it's not matching what you say you believe, then you must not believe what you think you believe. 
So we're going to look at a passage today that helps us to see that right doctrine, right beliefs, leads to right living. That a healthy church is marked by gospel doctrine, beliefs, and that leads to right living, culture. That's the currency of the church, if you will, if I can extend the financial stewardship uh, passage or sermon series one more week in that regard. So that's to say believing truth will lead us to living out that truth in a way that's ultimately for our good. Now, our normal habit, as you know, is to preach through uh, one book of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so since we're not doing that, we're just dropping right into the middle of a letter. I need to give you a little bit of context to what's going on. So uh, give me just a moment to do that. Paul, the writer of this letter, and several of his, his gospel friends had been in the city of Thessalonica a couple of years before the letter that we're about to read. So they'd already been there. They're sending now this letter back to people that he knows, that he loves, they know him, uh, they know his life, and all of that. So on the screens behind me, you'll see his words from earlier in the letter from chapter 1. And Paul says, Our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you receive the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So again, Paul's been to Thessalonica before, and now he's writing to people that he knows, that he loves, and, and that know him. He's reminding them that he's not just all talk. He backs up what he says, and, and they know that. And then he, he commends them for imitating his zeal and his obedience to Christ. That's pretty gutsy when you think about it, when you're commending somebody for imitating you. You've got to be really, either really arrogant and think probably too highly of yourself to be glad that somebody's imitating you, or you've got to be confident that the way you live your life is the way that other people ought to live their lives. So Paul was confident that his motives, his heart was pure, his actions were pure, and the way that he lived his life a couple of years ago, and he's reminding them of that and commending them for imitating him. Okay, so now we're in 1 Thessalonians 2, the chapter we're going to be in today. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. So let me read that for us now. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, though we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, 
we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So again, the aim for today is to help us see from this text that gospel doctrine plus gospel culture is the currency of the church. That a right belief in the word of God leads to right living. And that's how a church ought to be. So we're going to start in reverse. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14 first to see that gospel doctrine. That's, that's the driver or that's the engine. Then we'll look at verses 1 through 12 to see gospel culture. And that's the result of gospel doctrine. So gospel doctrine is the, the engine of the train and gospel culture is the caboose. You might know what cabooses are. Cabooses, they used to have cabooses on trains. They don't anymore. Anyway, it's the end of the train, all right? The driver, the engine, and the end. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. So reading verses 13 and 14 again, and we, it says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So don't miss this part, and this is just a, a truth about Paul in general. Paul was, was often grateful. I think we, we think of Paul as being direct, being blunt, uh, being very passionate about people confessing their sin, uh, coming back to, to obey Christ. He was very, very blunt and, and passionate about that. But I think we also think of him a little bit as a curmudgeon uh, or as somebody that you wouldn't want to invite to a party. Not so, not so fun. But I think Paul gets a bad rap. If you, if you look at the, the 13 letters that he's written in Scripture, uh, you'll notice that there are 50, not 50 different times, but 50 different topics that Paul gave thanks for, that he was grateful for. I think that was the disposition of his heart. It was constantly on his mind to be thankful, to be encouraging. And I would ask you, I think that's kind of convicting for us. I would ask you, do you have that same heart? Do you have a heart of thankfulness? Are you constantly encouraging others, being grateful for others, uh, thanking God for what he has brought into your life? Something I think for all of us to consider just as we read through this. So earlier in 1 Thessalonians, Paul expressed gratefulness for their steadfastness in the Lord, that they hadn't abandoned their faith. So he was, he was thanking them or grateful for them for their uh, staying with it, sticking with the faith. And here in verses 13 and 14, Paul's thankful to God for their receptivity of the gospel, that they heard the word and received it. In other words, when the Thessalonians heard the message of the gospel from Paul, they recognized that it was truth with a capital T, that it was divine truth, that it was truth from God. And the result of that truth is submission to its authority. They became imitators of those who were already following the gospel. God's word is powerful. Gospel doctrine is powerful, and that's a very good thing. Uh, it's not an easy thing to live as a Christian in Tempe today. Uh, 
you've heard it said that Christians are on the wrong side of history. Uh, it's becoming increasingly more and more that we're shunned or uh, set aside for our beliefs or mocked for our beliefs. But first century Thessalonica was, was not a cakewalk either. They were surrounded by pagan uh, leaders, by uh, cult leaders, by false religions. And they found that their words, the words of those, those cult leaders, that those words were empty and meaningless. But the word of God was received differently than that. They responded to the word of God. They were moved to action by the word. They became imitators of Christ because of the word. So there are many words, we're bombarded by words, many words that we hear in our lives, and not all of them are transformative. Um, I've seen many speed limit signs in my life, and I've not always been transformed by those words. Uh, when our daughter was young, we told her, don't cut your hair. And then when she turned four or five, what did she do? She cut her hair. She was not transformed by our words. So there are lots of times that, that we're not transformed by words, and, and certainly sometimes when we should not be transformed by the words that we hear. So how do we know which words to heed, which words to listen to, and which words to follow? Well, we should consider the source of those words. We should think about the source. So look at verse 13 again. You see the word us, then, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, uh, that and other clues in the passage tell us that uh, though Paul was the messenger, the word wasn't originating from him. He didn't come up with this on his own. He was just the messenger for this word. It's the word of God. It's received by the Thess Thessalonians as the word of God. That's the source. And that word produces fruit. And it gets results. It can be trusted. Gospel doctrine is vital for our daily life. So we see that all throughout scripture, uh, just three verses that I want, three passages that I want to share that just kind of sum that up or, or point towards that. You can find this everywhere, but 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So gospel doctrine, God's word is profitable. And then in Hebrews 4, we see, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So gospel doctrine is powerful. And then in Isaiah, God says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So gospel doctrine is effective. It's profitable, it's powerful, and it's effective. Now God's word says that about itself. But listen, God's people prove that to be true as well. God's word transforms his people. His words affect and cause us to live differently. Now what are some evidences, that, evidences of that? How do we see that God's word affects us to the point that our actions are different. Well, we see several of those in the first 12 verses from Paul. Paul had certainly been transformed by the word. So we're going to walk through these first 12 verses for a few minutes, and we're going to see how gospel doctrine transformed God's people into having a gospel culture 
and then we'll apply this to our lives today. So first looking at Paul, uh, first in verse 2, Paul says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul is just reminding them that Paul and his friends, before they came to Thessalonica, they had been to Philippi. And when they were in Philippi, they were persecuted and opposed heavily for they suffered for proclaiming the gospel. And yet, even after that experience, they came to Thessalonica anyway to share the gospel. Paul is saying that the word gospel doctrine transformed Paul to the point that he would rather suffer than not proclaim the gospel. That he would rather suffer than not proclaim the gospel. And then in verse 3, we, we see that gospel culture is genuine. So reading verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So a correct gospel doctrine affects our motives. It affects our methods. Paul's motives proved to be pure and his methods proved to not be deceptive. And then look at verse 4. We see that the gospel motivates us to live lives for Christ and not for man. I'm not, not going to read every one of these passages. I think they'll be on the screen, but hopefully you have your Bible in front of you. You can read along as we go through, uh, just walk through this passage and see how Paul was transformed. So the gospel motivates us to live lives for Christ and not for man. Now, how, how hard is that to live your life for Christ? and not for people. We, we are born people pleasers, aren't we? Don't we seek to, I think we're taught that from an early age. It affects us as kids, it affects us as adults, it affects our parenting, it affects us in the workplace, it affects us in school, in schools. We are born people pleasers. We live our lives in fear of other people rather than in a, a correct and God-honoring fear of the Lord. So we're in the middle, many of you know that, you were in those classes just a moment ago, we're in the middle of a, a six-week connection class on this very topic, uh, fear of man. It's a huge topic, it affects every single one of us. Uh, if you miss that, in two weeks, on February 19th, we'll be starting that class again at 11.15. You'll see that in your bulletin, you hear some more announcements about that, but make plans now uh, for that. The men are meeting separately in the uh, multi-purpose building, the Women in the Christian Challenge building. It's a great time to understand and get further into this topic. So Paul says in verse 4 that gospel doctrine transforms us into people who place a higher priority on pleasing God. And in pointing that out, Paul is further attesting to the fact that he's pure in motive. He's pure in method. It says God himself is witness to Paul's integrity. Only God knows truly what goes on in your heart. He tests our hearts and the hearts of everyone, as verse 4 says. But it's not just God who witnesses the integrity of the one who's transformed by gospel doctrine. Verses 5 and 6 show us that others can see whether our walk matches our talk. People can see whether we're self-centered or whether we're God-centered and God-focused by, by just listening to our words and watching our actions. 
So Paul didn't come to Thessalonica looking for glory. Now, how easy would it have been for him to pull out the, the apostle card? Not just here, but, but everywhere. I, I surely would have been tempted to say, uh, listen to me because I'm an apostle of Christ and you're not. Or obey me because I've seen the risen Christ and you haven't seen the risen Christ. How tempting would it have been for Paul to use that as a fallback or to use that in an abusive or authoritarian way. But Paul didn't seek his glory. He sought God's glory. In verse 7, further drives the point home that Paul's authority wasn't heavy-handed, wasn't hard to bear. Uh, I, I hope none of you are surprised to know that I've never nursed a child. Paul hadn't nursed a child either. That's impossible for a man to nurse a child, right? But what a, what a selfless, intimate thing that is. Mothers, you know that's the case. You give and you give and the baby takes and receives and you get not much in return, right? So what a, what a loving and intimate thing. And what's the motivation for that? Why do moms do that? The motivation is love. It's because they love their child. So Paul's point is that gospel doctrine drives us not to be authoritarian, not to be selfish, but rather to be loving and gentle and kind and intimate in the way that we interact with one another. All right, let's spend just a moment on verse 8. When uh, I saw the title for this sermon, I thought not just 1 Thessalonians 2, but this verse in particular. And so it reads, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So this, this too is very vulnerable, very intimate language that Paul is using. Paul had been so changed by the truth of the gospel that he had an unusually affectionate desire for these people. And these people were far different from Paul. They were Gentiles, and Paul was a Jew. They were mostly uneducated. Paul was highly educated. They were mostly working class people, and Paul was uh, someone who came from some status and perhaps some wealth as well. Very different from him. And yet he shared not only the gospel, not just with his words, but he shared his very life with these people. And so did the people Paul was with. It's an interesting way of putting it. Shared our own selves. So think, we don't have these in America today, but think of an arranged marriage. You're probably familiar with that concept. So two people that have never met, a man and a woman never met, they meet on their wedding day, and they find out very quickly on that day they are polar opposites, completely different. And yet they take the wedding vows, and let's just imagine that they actually mean it. And then not only that, they actually live it out every single day. That would be a little bit of an example of what Paul is talking about with people that are far different from him, sharing life with these people. And we know that Paul and his friends did live it out. Look at verse 9. He begins that verse with, for you remember. Now, that's, now, if you glance back at the first nine verses, you'll see that's the fourth time that Paul has called on the Thessalonians to remember something. Remember something about him. 
and about them. You don't tell someone to remember unless you can be confident that they're going to remember things the way you remember them, that they're going to remember something positive about you, or else you're not going to tell them to remember that, right? So Paul knows that they remember that he was true, that he was good for them, that he, his motives, again, were pure. His actions were pure in the way that he interacted with them. And this time, Paul's calling them to remember his manual labor. The gospel impacted Paul's work ethic. So Paul and his friends, they didn't travel all the way at their own expense and at their own hardship, uh, hundreds of miles to Thessalonica, just so they could do hard physical labor. They came with the expectation that this church was going to be able to provide their needs and support them. And so when they got there, they realized that the church was so destitute and so poor that they couldn't provide their needs. And so what did Paul do? Again, here's another point. He could have pulled out the apostle card and said, you know, that really stinks, and I'm just going to go home. This is not worth it. Or I demand that you give me your home. You go live on the street or whatever and give me a place to live. Now, instead of that, he rolled up his sleeves and he went to the hard work of providing a way to support himself so that he could share the gospel with these people. Paul didn't complain and he wasn't lazy. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Again, Paul didn't abuse his position as an apostle. He didn't manipulate. He wasn't authoritarian. The church couldn't provide all of their needs, and so he jumped in and he did hard work. And hard work in doing manual labor and hard work in sharing the gospel as well in word and in action. And in verse 10, we see that Paul appeals to them to remember their behavior. Gospel doctrine affects our behavior. We, we live out holy lives. We have holy behavior as a result of the gospel. And then finally, look once more at verses 11 and 12. We see more imagery here throughout the letter. Um, in every chapter, we see affectionate terms. If, you'll, if you were reading last week in 1 Thessalonians, you saw that Three or four times in every chapter is the term brothers and sisters, another affectionate term. So earlier he compared his disposition towards the church as that of a nursing mother, and this time it's of a loving father, a good father. So what is a good father? What's a good father do? Well, a good father exhorts, a good father encourages, a good father corrects and disciplines, a good father comforts in times of need. And what's, again, the motivation for all of that? Why, is a good why does a good father do that? It's the same reason that a good mother nurses her child. It's out of love. The motivation is love. So a good father loves his children by encouraging them, by spurring them on to better things, by correcting them so that they don't suffer pain. That's what Paul and his friends did. That's what gospel doctrine leads us to do. So we've seen that in Paul's life, at least, that, that truth does lead to action. That gospel doctrine rightly applied leads to a gospel culture. So do you see that in your life? And do you see that in this church? Now, our church isn't perfect, and I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, 
But Paul wasn't perfect either. And yet, the overwhelming majority of evidence was that they were living out the gospel day in and day out there in Thessalonica. So much so that they were imploring them to remember, remember how I lived my life. Remember my good heart towards you, my good actions, the way I lived. So could that be true of you? And could that be true of us? Well, I want to spend the last 15 minutes or so just as an encouragement and an exhortation. It's an encouragement of what's going on in the life of our church, how we actually are a people of the gospel, a people of gospel doctrine that leads then to gospel culture. And then I want to end with an exhortation that we'll always need to be growing in both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. We've, we've still got more to do in glorifying God, more to do in living out that truth and applying that to our lives. So start with verse two again. So look back to verse two. The message of that verse is that gospel doctrine, again, the engine, that's the engine, produces a gospel culture of sharing your faith, living as a Christian, even despite persecution and opposition. So wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be nice if there was a church where a Christian was surrounded by brothers and sisters who encouraged them to continue to share their faith at work or at school, even in the face of opposition? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church where that Christian was encouraged to keep the faith, as 2 Timothy 4 says, and to not grow weary of doing good, as Galatians 6 says. Now look back at verse 3. That verse references the need for pure motives, the desire to share with one another for good purposes, for holy purposes. Wouldn't it be nice if, if there was a church where a Christian was taught that behavior isn't the target? That's not the primary thing that we're looking to change. That's not the focal point. But instead, that changing the heart is the most important thing. A church that offered parenting seminars called From Behavior to the Heart or Targeting the Heart. A church that talked about money not as a goal, but as an opportunity to glorify God. A church that took the spiritual discipline seriously, not as a way to earn God's favor, but rather as a way to know God more and to love God more. A church that practiced church discipline as a way to lovingly care for the heart of a church member and not used as a way to ostracize or to punish someone. Wouldn't it be nice to be a part of a church like that? Look back to verse 4. Now, a gospel doctrine encourages us to be pleasers of God rather than pleasers of men. So wouldn't it be nice if there was a church where people not only bore each other's burdens, but they also rejoiced in each other's blessings? A church where the people were more concerned with God being glorified than being jealous of one another. A church where gossip didn't reign or where there wasn't constant comparison of your blessings to those of the person that was sitting next to you, or your troubles in comparison to the person that's sitting next to you. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church where the members saw each other not as competitors and not as enemies to be distrusted, but as family, as God's chosen people, as working together for the good of each other and for the glory of God?
in verses 5 and 6, the central message is that gospel doctrine causes us to spotlight Christ and not ourselves, to put the spotlight on God. So wouldn't it be nice if there was a church where the members provided housing for one another, even at times at their own expense, and always at less than market value? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church that loved to do things anonymously or with little fanfare behind the scenes, not caring whether anyone ever found out what you'd done, all because the one that they're trying to please was also the one that they're trying to put in the spotlight, God himself. Verse 7, we see Paul talking about motherly affection. So wouldn't it be nice if there was a church where a brother in sin felt comfortable to share his struggles with another brother, knowing that he would not be met with condemnation or shame, not fear of judgment, but with love and concern for his well-being? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church where a new mom knew she could reach out for help from an older mom, a more established or seasoned mom who's been through what she's going through, knowing that she'd find comfort and rest and encouragement and help? And in verse 8, we see a gospel culture of sharing life. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church where people just came over to your house on a regular basis with no agenda? just to hang out, or or a church where people knew that you'd been ill and so they, they mowed your yard or they brought food over or they cleaned your house because you were not feeling well enough to do it yourself, or a church where people noticed if you'd been missing on Sunday mornings for a couple of weeks and called to check in to see how you're doing. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church like that? In verse 9, we see that ministers of the gospel work hard. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church that encouraged a strong work ethic for men who worked hard in their day jobs and then went home to work just as hard at being a father or a husband or a church member or a roommate? For men who didn't escape into video games, women who didn't escape into social media, Wouldn't it be nice if there's a church where nearly everyone serves, not out of compulsion or obligation, but because they enjoy using the gifts that God's given them, and they want to glorify God. They they, they love being able to serve one another. Or verse 10 about godly character. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church where younger men got to mix it up on a regular basis with older men or younger women with older women, in small groups, in classes on Sunday mornings, classes on Wednesday nights, in people's homes, all with the purpose of sharing life and sharpening character. And finally, verses 11 and 12 about fatherly care. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church where you were encouraged and admonished? You were encouraged to continue on in the gospel faith by a cheerleader who loved you and cared for you and wanted you to succeed and admonished to stay true to the teachings of the gospel doctrine by a cheerleader who loved you and cared for you and wanted you to succeed. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church like that? Well, I'm sure everybody in the room knows. Friends, we are that church. This is us. Every one of those examples that I gave, every single one, I could, I could put names to that of ways that you've done that for me 
or ways that, you, that I know that you've done that for other people in this room. We are this church. And we're so, so blessed to have elders and other teachers who week in and week out on Sunday mornings preach through, it's, it's rarer than you would think, to preach through a chapter or a section of scripture, to do that in gospel communities, to do that on Wednesday nights, uh, to be sharing the gospel in our connection classes. We're so, so blessed to have elders and others who do that on a week in and week out basis. And we're so, so blessed to have a gospel culture where so many wonderful things are able to happen, not just here on Sunday morning on our church property, but throughout the week in your homes and in your classrooms and in your workplaces and in your neighborhoods. So friends, be encouraged. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a church? There is a church just like that. So be encouraged, but also be exhorted or be warned or be cautioned. We're always on a knife's edge of losing that gospel culture. It may not seem that way, but that's why we must continue to hold fast to the gospel because gospel culture doesn't spring up out of nothingness. Just take, take a look around you for just a second. You guys are nice, but you're not that nice, <laughs> right? This didn't come because of our own ability. This came because we have been transformed by the word. Gospel doctrine, what we hear, what we read in scripture, changes our lives, helps us to live lives that are holy, gives us this culture that we see and that we're talking about. So we must hold fast to the truth of the gospel for many reasons, not the least of which is the gospel culture that we live in. That's why we must watch out for things that'll steal away that gospel culture. Uh, this coming year, who knows what the Lord will bring in 2023, but no matter what it is, we have to hold fast to gospel doctrine. One of the things that Lord willing we will do this year is we'll begin building new facilities. Uh, and talking to other pastors and seeing other churches, they will all, the pastors will all tell you that it's so easy because of the enormity of the task of building something new, to lose just a little bit of gospel doctrine because your focus is on something else. And then when you lose that, you lose a large part of the gospel culture. So above all, we must continue to treasure Christ. Keep the engine at the front where it belongs, where it needs to be. So let me speak for just a moment specifically to those who are new here, to those who maybe haven't yet committed their life to Christ. You may have found some of the things that I, I mentioned about gospel culture to be attractive. Maybe you really want that kind of community. Maybe you'd like to have that, have what we have here. But we can't have a long-lasting gospel culture without the gospel. You can't have that culture without the gospel. So make no mistake, we have what we have because God has changed us. It's impossible to have what we have without the saving work of God in our life. And the message of the gospel is simply that we're sinful, that we're in need, that we're unable to save ourselves. We're unable to live a life free from guilt and sin. So God, our creator, came from heaven to save us, to rescue us. And so if we confess that Jesus is Lord, meaning that we recognize that we can't save ourselves, that we need to be saved from our guilt, 
and sin. And if we repent of our sins, meaning that we turn from our selfishness and turn from our, from our harmful ways, then God will save us and he will give us an eternal life with him. But also, in addition to that, he doesn't just give us an eternal life. He gives us a life right now that's to be lived in community, that has all of those things and more that we just talked about. He also made us members of a new family, a new people, this church being one example of that new family. The gospel culture that he speaks of comes from a right belief in the gospel. And we would implore you, if you have not received that gospel, receive it now. Receive what you've heard now and turn to Jesus and follow him. But also, inevitably and certainly, I'm sure that there were some in this room who struggled to relate to a little bit or a lot of that culture that I just described. Perhaps you're prone to jealousy in comparison. Perhaps you struggle with inadequacy or not fully seeing your identity as being in Christ. Perhaps you have low motivation or, or perhaps you're just prone to feelings of guilt, feelings of shame. Well, if that's you, I'd encourage you, don't keep that to yourself. I've been there. I think probably everybody in this room has been there at some time or another. So don't allow bitterness and resentment to build up that you can't experience fully the things that we just talked about. Share that with someone in your gospel community. Share that with somebody sitting around you this morning. And we'd love to talk with you about that. And be encouraged that the gospel is the answer to whatever it is that you're feeling. If you're jealous or envious, the gospel tells us instead that we don't need to look to others in comparison, that we have all we need in Christ, that Christ is enough. There's no need for comparisons when we've been adopted into his family. And if, you, if you're feeling guilty or ashamed, the gospel tells us that God saved us when he saved us. He saved us also from the guilt of our sin, as Psalm 32 says. We no longer need to wallow in guilt over past sins. We can trust that God sees us as worthy today and not as shameful. God sees us and he approves of us. And if you're feeling inadequate or you have low motivation, the gospel tells us that God knows us, that he values us, that we have no need of low self-worth because we're a child of the king and we've been given every spiritual blessing, as Ephesians 1.3 says. We have a great God one who has provided for us gospel doctrine in his holy scriptures, one who's gifted us with a church family that is exhibiting this gospel culture that we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And that's all to the praise of his glorious grace, as Ephesians 1 says. So our God is so good. We have so much to praise him and thank him and be encouraged by Gospel doctrine plus gospel culture is the currency of the church. So let's praise him. Let's continue to glorify him in the way that we live our lives. Let's pray. Before I pray, just take just a moment and consider what you've heard and the gospel culture and how you might need to grow in those areas.
Father, you are so good to us. We praise your name for all that you are, all that you've done. You've revealed yourself to us. You've given your word to us. And because it's your word, because you desire not only to save and to give new life to us, but also to give us a new family. God, we praise you that we don't have to wait for eternity to experience many of the best things of life. We praise your name for a gospel culture in this church that results from belief in your word. We praise you for elders, for teachers who are faithful to your word. We praise you for men and women who live lives centered around your word, around your teaching, and who desire to live holy lives, to obey, to give their lives to you, to share what they have in you with the people around them. And Father, we pray for those that heard this word today but don't yet have the gospel, who don't have life in you. We pray that the people in this room would be an attractive testimony of who you are. And so we pray for their salvation today. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus who made the gospel possible. Amen.